It's September 20th, 1973, and the Houston Astrodome bubbles with excitement. Roughly 30,000 fans crowd the stands, and about 90 million tune in at home. Anticipation brews. This is no ordinary tennis match. It's the battle of the sexes. A winner-takes-all game between on-the-court powerhouse 29-year-old Billie Jean King and tennis legend, as well as self-proclaimed male chauvinist Bobby Riggs. This particular match isn't just about serves and volleys, or even the inviting opportunity to quiet an obnoxious Riggs once and for all. The stakes are much higher. King accepted this challenge to prove that it's skill and athleticism that matters on the court, and that women possess those winning ingredients just as much as men. So it only makes sense that athletes should be entitled to the same pay, representation, and opportunities regardless of gender. But so far, that hasn't been King's experience. If she wins today, she stands to empower women everywhere. But if Riggs takes the match, then it's another victory for sexism and gender inequality. The pressure's on, but it's a far cry from buttoned-up Wimbledon-style tennis. King enters the stadium Cleopatra-style. On a modern-day litter, a couch carried on the shoulders of four buff, shirtless men, dressed as ancient servants. She waves to the sea of fans in the stands. Their audible excitement nearly drowns out the live marching band. Riggs, outfitted in a mustard-yellow Sugar Daddy tracksuit, brings his own jest. Pulled on a rickshaw by a flock of female models, deemed Bobby's bosom buddies, his entrance is a spectacle, the carnival of sporting events. On the court, the opponents exchange pre-game gifts and jovial smiles, an oversized sugar daddy lollipop for King and a baby pig for Riggs. Then it quickly explodes into game time. The crowd falls still, all eyes on the biggest match of the century. King starts strong, volleying lightning speed shots past her opponent. Rick scampers back and forth, still wearing his warm-up jacket, a glaring sign of disrespect that continues for the first three games. King glides across the court, a testament to her rigorous training schedule, maintaining a sense of calm and focus as she sweeps the first match 6-4. While King is getting more fired up, Riggs is beginning to slow. His stamina, along with his warm-up jacket, disappear as the match goes on. His sprints become shuffles. His calculated shots turn into unforced errors. A 55-year-old Riggs has met his match. And what do you know? She's a woman. At Cross Border Solutions, 
Genius isn't narrowly defined by high IQs or Ivy League degrees. Around here, you have to work a little harder to earn the coveted status. Sorry, Harvard. For us, the term genius is about game-changing ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution. Welcome to Genius Beats Fear, cross-border solutions thought-provoking podcast, where we discuss real-life disruptors who push the envelope so far, they change the way we live. Do these innovators face obstacles, challenges, critics? Of course. But then, genius always beats fear. So how is it that a professional tennis player belongs on a podcast called Genius Beats Fear? It's a fair question. After all, ripping a backhand, as Billie Jean King was known to do, requires stamina, strength, agility, and of course, athletic ability. But genius? Well, King's brilliance was never about her athletic ability on the court, though it was incredibly impressive. Her genius stemmed from the way she leveraged her skills beyond the baseline. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Rig's chauvinism was the least of King's problems. Female athletes, including King, were competing at the same level as men, and yet they were earning a fraction of the pay. King was furious. At a time when a woman couldn't get a credit card without a man's signature, King declared war on preferential earnings for male athletes. A champion in the world's top matches, Wimbledon's, Grand Slam's, U.S. Open's, King knew her worth, even if male tournament organizers didn't. Power on the court equaled power off the court, and hers had little to do with her backhand. She had filled stands all over the world with swarms of fans willing to splurge on expensive tickets to witness her quick footwork, slick drop shots, and whip-like ground strokes. She was the reigning Wimbledon champ, fighting for equal pay for female players. Now it was time to hit the world with her fearless ingenuity, refusing to play. See, the more you win, the more opportunities you have. If you're number one, they'll listen more. We honor what she calls all of the off-the-court stuff. Sexism had played a role in King's life since she was old enough to hold a racket. Born Billie Jean Moffitt, the tennis star grew up playing softball in Long Beach, California, her burgeoning athletic talent overshadowed by early 1950s cultural values. Her parents suggested she pursue a more ladylike sport, tennis. Taking to the court with ease, young King flew through the air with a racket the way she had with a mitt. But even then, she had already begun to learn that tennis was not an equal playing field for men and women. In 1955, 12-year-old King was prohibited from appearing in a Los Angeles tennis club photo. The reason? She wore shorts instead of a traditional tennis skirt. Her male peers weren't ostracized for wearing shorts, so why should she be? By the time King was 17, in 1961, she had won her first Wimbledon doubles title. 
Over the next seven years, she traveled around the globe, growing a fan base and playing with and against the best female athletes in the world. 1968 kicked off tennis's open era, making Grand Slam tournaments accessible to amateurs and professionals. King turned pro, naturally expecting to be compensated like her male competitors. That's not quite how things went. In 1968, King took home her third Wimbledon win and received 750 euros, a generous windfall at that time. The problem was her male counterpart, Rod Laver, collected 2,000 euros, nearly three times her winnings for competing in the same tournament. King was incensed. Two years later, King won the Italian Open and was awarded a lump sum of $600. However, Illy Nastasi, the men's winner, received $3,500, nearly six times her winnings. In King's eyes, all competitors were doing the same work. Why weren't they compensated with the same generosity? Who cares if some wore shorts and others wore skirts? Unlike injuries she suffered on the court, this blow wouldn't go away with ice and rest. The pay gap injustice came to a head in the summer of 1970. The Pacific Southwest Tennis Tournament announced women would receive 12% of the prize money awarded to men. An interesting choice, given that the women's final sold just as many tickets as the men's. I love tennis very much. I wanted it to change ever since I started in the sport. I thought it was just for the rich and just for the white. King had had enough. She knew if she didn't take action, nothing would change. She teamed up with World Tennis Magazine publisher Gladys Heldman and led eight other women's professional tennis players to launch a women-only tournament in Houston, Texas. Christened with $1 contracts, the group, known as the Original Nine, began the crusade for women's equality in tennis. Sponsored by tobacco tycoon Philip Morris, the $7,500 purse tournament became known as the Virginia Slims Invitational. Women finally had an event to call their own. You've come a long way, baby. Introducing new Virginia Slims, the slim cigarette for women only, tailored for the feminine. I think the other girls have got to be given a lot of credit. They've done a lot of promotional work this year, and uh, even the last two weeks, I want you to know the players are even rooting for me for the first time just to make this $100,000. So the courageous effort didn't come without backlash. The Virginia Slims Invitational was intentionally scheduled at the same time as the Pacific Southwest, a mixed tournament, meaning both male and female players took the court. The United States Lawn Tennis Association, the highest national authority on the sport, saw the competing circuit as unwanted competition. It threatened Virginia Slim's invitational participants with loss of national rankings and a ban from Grand Slam competitions. King realized her next move would impact female tennis stars to come. Chris Everett, Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Sloane Stevens didn't know it yet, but they hung in the balance of King's next move. 
the Women's Only Virginia Slims Invitational proved to be successful. A year into its launch, the series had 40 registered players across 19 tournaments, offering $309,000 in prize money. Crowds gathered to watch women play, knowing that competition and excitement were never in short supply. It would eventually spawn the Women's Tennis Association, an organization founded on providing equal opportunity to women in professional sports. Thanks to King's dedication and perseverance, today, the WTA has more than 1,650 participants across 85 nations. King was acing her social justice battles, but her game took a hit. At the start of 1972, she lost eight of the ten tournaments she played, with inconsistent results running through mid-April. With rigorous workouts and tireless mental focus, her stride returned that September when she won the U.S. Open in singles against Kelly Melville, one of the original nine. While she conquered the game, once again she fell victim to the times, receiving $15,000 less than male singles winner Illy Nastasi. King was done. In a battle for equality, her next move wasn't a volley or an overhead. It was a boycott. To the surprise of fans, tennis rivals, and tournament officials, King announced that she would not play in the U.S. Open the following year if the prize money wasn't equal for men and women. King had won her ninth career Grand Slam title and third U.S. Open title by the time she announced her potential boycott. Everyone thinks women should be thrilled when we get crumbs. And I want women to have the cake, the icing, and the cherry on top, too, she said. King's boycott threat led to the U.S. Open being the first major tennis tournament to offer equal prize money to men and women players. The U.S. Tennis Association moved swiftly, instituting, for the first time ever, equal prize money for the U.S. Open. That year's female singles winner, Margaret Court, took home $25,000, the same dollar amount as the male singles winner. King had won critical matches around the globe, but the battle of the sexes would be symbolic of her fight for gender equality off the court. She had to win. Riggs was out for blood, calling women's tennis an inferior sport. The over-the-hill athlete boasted, at age 55, he could still beat any of the top female players, and he had his eyes on King from the get-go. Her crusading feminist energy would make a sweet victory. When King declined his initial offer to play in 1973, Riggs took on Margaret Court, ranked number two in the world. It was a bloodbath of a match dubbed the Mother's Day Massacre, as Riggs defeated Court in straight sets, 6-2, 6-1. So when, but when Margaret lost, I had to play him. I didn't want to play him. I had to play him. I really think the best way to handle the women is to keep them pregnant and uh, bear <laughs>
Riggs was ready for his next victim. I want King Bad. I'll play her on clay, grass, wood, marble, <laughs> or roller skates, he said. I'm a woman specialist now. King weighed Riggs's challenge carefully. She had never played three out of five sets. She had just launched the Women's Tennis Association, a pioneering mission in its infancy. If she lost to Riggs, she could set back female athletes everywhere. If she won, she could spark a surge for equality, both on the court and off. I thought it would set us back 50 years if I didn't win that match. It would ruin the women's tour and affect all women's self-esteem, King said. King accepted the offer and upped the stakes even higher. Winner takes all. The prize? $100,000. After nearly two and a half hours, finally the match had culminated into one final point. The drop shot and volley heard around the world as the London Sunday Times described it. Riggs serves. King delivers a powerful return. Riggs rushes the net and sets up for a volley and he misses. The ball lands in the net. The crowd goes wild. King throws her racket into the air and relishes a hard-earned victory. As the opponents embrace at the net, Riggs whispers, I underestimated you. Clearly, he wasn't the only one. Hello, I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear. Today, we're discussing Billie Jean King's accomplishments and contributions, both on and off the court, with Susan Ware, author of Game, Set, Match, Billie Jean King and the Revolution in Women's Sports. Thank you for being here, Susan. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. So you've written a collection of works centered around women's history and pioneering female figures. What drew you to King's story in particular? Well, my whole career as a women's historian, I have always been interested in questions of feminism and popular culture. And also, as someone who loves sports and is very competitive, uh, but is just a little bit too old to have had the opportunity to play sports when I was in high school and college, um, I've always been looking for a figure that would allow me to combine my interests in the history of feminism and the history of sports. And Billie Jean King, of course, is perfect for that. So she and I, I think, were a, a good match as biographer and subject. And she gave me the opportunity to both deal with her amazing academic career and life story, but also to place that life story in the larger context of 20th century women's history and the history of feminism. King knew from a young age that she wanted to be a tennis star. She told her mother, I'm going to be number one in the world. What qualities do you think King possessed to make this happen aside from her athleticism? 
Well, I think some stories like telling your mother when you're doing the dishes that you want to be number one in the world are perhaps a tad uh, embellished over (laughs) the years. So I think she knew from an early age that she didn't want the kind of traditional life that was held out to women. Remember, she was born in the 1940s, and the usual path for a white woman of her class background would have been marriage and children. And I think she always knew that she didn't really fit into that mode. I don't think she quite knew how little did she fit into it as she later grappled with her questions of her sexuality. But I think always from the beginning, she just knew that she wanted to do more. And sports was her way to do it. And of course, what not everybody knows is that her older brother became a major league baseball star. So it's clearly a sports-minded family, Uh, and yet what I think is so fascinating about her life and her life trajectory is that when she says that she wants to be number one in the world and she wants to be a tennis star, there's no professional tennis yet. There's really no way for a woman to contemplate having, making a career, making money out of being a tennis star. And that in some ways, she has to create that path to women's professional tennis in order for her and many, many others to be able to fulfill those dreams. So it's really quite a remarkable story. But I think it's also a combination of her being the right person in the right place at the right time when things are changing in the world of tennis and when things are changing in popular discussion of women's roles and women's rights. And this would be in the in the 1960s when she is coming of age. Yeah, I never thought about that, of not having a role model to be like, let me see how they did it and then just emulate them and follow that no, path. She's it. <laughs> she is really it. And then, of course, what's so sweet is how she has become a role model for so many other women athletes and not just in tennis. And they all say, you know, it was really Billie Jean King who showed the way. And in return, she is there for every battle that is fought, trying to get women better access and resources for women's professional leagues and the various sports on college campuses everywhere. She continues to be an advocate for parity in women's sports, and that is one of the things that I admire most about her career. So King was only a preteen when she faced that outfit injustice that you went over, where she wasn't allowed to be in the picture because she was wearing shorts instead of a skirt. How do you think this incident lit the match for her future social advocacy? Well, I think it showed her, reinforced for her, the class connotations and the clubbiness of tennis at that point. It really was all white. Even the balls were white then and the clothing. And it was seen as an elite country club sport. And she was not from an elite country club background. Her father was, a, I believe, a, a firefighter in Long Beach. And so one of the things that she had to do along the way and which she was determined to do 
was to break tennis out of this kind of country club reputation and really make it into a popular sport that people cared about. So I think that the the incident where she's told that she can't wear shorts and she needs to have a tennis dress is part of her rebellion against the status quo in the tennis establishment. And from that point on, she had her share of run-ins with that tennis establishment, which was primarily white men, because she was trying to get them to change the way they had always done things. And ultimately, she succeeds. It's not just her alone, but tennis does emerge as a widely popular sport, both to play and to watch on TV in the 1970s and beyond. And that was always her vision. Um, I think as much as a feminist vision of equality for women, and yet the two are intertwined because as tennis became a more popular sport, the same old patterns replicated themselves. The women's tournaments were relegated as sort of an afterthought. They got one-twelfth of the prize money. All the attention and all the money went to the men. And she said, that's not fair, and I'm going to change it. So her battle is twofold. It's to change the world of tennis, and it's also to make sure that women tennis players get their fair share in this emerging new world. I'm so impressed. So in 1961, King became internationally recognized along with Karen Hansa Sussman as the youngest pair to win Wimbledon women's doubles title. What do you think this taught her about the power of teamwork? And how do you think this experience helped her when she joined other professional players for the original nine? Well, I've never really played doubles. So I play singles tennis, partly because of Billie Jean King's example. So I don't really know how much teamwork that it entails. I'm sure quite a lot. I think in some ways, the stronger message she took away from winning that title, you use the phrase internationally famous, but winning the women's doubles at Wimbledon in 1961 was not a big deal. And later in her career, like when she was um, getting ready for the battle of the sexes against Bobby Riggs in 1973, and she would have these press conferences with hundreds of reporters, and she would say basically, where were you when I first won Wimbledon in 1961? There were no reporters covering that, maybe one or two. Uh, Nobody cared. And so I think what she realized was that tennis, and especially women's tennis, had a visibility um, problem and that she would have to fight to get attention for the accomplishments of women. And what she always knew and always believed was that women's athleticism was just as compelling as men's. It was just as much fun to watch a women's doubles match as it was a men's match. And yet people weren't interested or weren't given the opportunity precisely because they were female athletes and they were valued less. And I think she really did very early on realize that she had to change that. But she always knew that she couldn't do it by herself. And I think one of her proudest accomplishments was 
gathering support among the emerging women's professional tour from other women so that they could act together and join to found the Women's Tennis Association, which is basically like their union. Um, So she was both a galvanizer for that, but she knew that she needed the support of uh, of the other women tennis players. And I think that many of these lessons really do come from earlier moments in her career. And then she just happens to have the perfect skill set to galvanize people, to get public attention, to be able to work with the tournament leaders and to get things done. I mean, she would have been a fantastic labor organizer if she weren't such a great tennis player. King's wins were enough to make her a driving force in the tennis world. What do you think motivated her to advocate for equal rights? Well, as I've said, I think that her advocacy for women's rights was very much tied up in her trying to make tennis, professional tennis, a popular and viable sport uh, where people, men and women who were good athletes, could, could make a living at it. Remember, before she really took this on, and it's, again, it's not just her, people like Arthur Ashe are also involved, there was this kind of was called shamateurism. Tennis was supposedly an amateur sport, but people, the players were getting paid under the table. And the women, of course, would hardly get paid anything at all. And she really wanted to challenge that system and make it work more in the open as a professional system where people could really contemplate having a career and making money. I mean, You can't reduce Billie Jean to making money, you know, to the ability to make money, although she did make a fair amount for a woman athlete in the 1970s. But I think she really did have a realization that in American society, money counts. And if you can get more money for the field of tennis uh, in terms of prize money, and then if you can get more prize money for women players, it raises their stature. And one of the most amazing accomplishments of hers was that she got the U.S. Open to agree to equal prize money for women back in 1973. And Wimbledon didn't agree to equal prize money until... Well, you can Google it, but it's it's either 2006 or it might even be later than that. Uh, so in this case and so many others, she's, she's ahead of her times. She really is. King has said numerous times that she was quite nervous before the battle of the sexes match. What does this say about King's ability to recognize fear and move through it? Well, I think... <laughs> If you're used to playing tennis matches before a few thousand people and all of a sudden you're going to be at the Houston Astrodome before 30,000 people and with a worldwide television audience of millions, of course you're going to be nervous. Uh, And and of course you should be. Um, But what you have to know about Billie Jean King is that she loves pressure. I mean, she wrote a book called Pressure is a privilege. 
And that really is her mantra. And I think that made her such an incredibly competitive athlete that she could just channel that fear and that pressure and all the expectations, channel it and block it out, and then play at an amazingly high level. Uh, And that's precisely what she did uh, during the Battle of the Sexes. I mean, she literally had the expectations of most of the women in the country and many of the men riding on her shoulders. Um, I remember watching that match and just being so nervous. I mean, the world wouldn't have ended if she hadn't won and feminism wouldn't have gone away. Um, But it felt so sweet (laughs) when she did win. And so she must have known that she was carrying all those expectations and but she again channels it into a positive rather than a negative and i think that's been the key to her success and it's probably something that is shared by many professional athletes the ability to do that um, and do it consistently how would you categorize king's genius i think that Billie Jean King's genius really comes from always keeping her eyes on the prize. And for her, the prize was women's professional tennis and making it into as big a phenomenon as it could be. And along the way, she sort of expanded her vision. She included equal rights. She learned how to really function as a public celebrity. And she just kept at it. The other thing that she did so well, and and which is very tricky for an athlete, is that she managed, once she was no longer playing competitively, because at some point, the knees are going to give out and the young kids are going to come along and you can't win anymore. She managed to figure out how to keep her career going as a sports celebrity for years and years and years. And she did that by transforming herself into an advocate for women's sports. And that really kept her in the public eye. It gave her plenty to do in terms of speaking, working with the Women's Sports Foundation that she founded. Uh, And then starting in the 1990s, there was another transformation when having finally accepted uh, her sexual orientation as a lesbian, she comes out of the closet and emerges as a spokesperson for gay rights. And so there's a way in which her genius is her ability to keep growing, but also to find ways to keep the passion that she has for women's sports ongoing and make a career out of it. Uh, And here she is now approaching 80 And she's still at it and still loving it. Um, So I think that really is um, a matter of genius. It's crazy that she is almost 80. I watched so many interviews with her as I was writing this piece, and I was thinking, she has more energy in her pinky finger than I have now. Well, 
it's, I noticed when I interviewed her and, you know, she gets a lot out of it too. I interviewed her at a Women's Sports Foundation event and there was a way that she worked the crowd. She made sure everybody got to have a picture with her and everybody felt included and she made time for this historian who wanted to talk to her. And that was all her giving to us. But we could tell, I could tell she was getting so much out of it. She just loved the kind of lapping up the celebrity and being the center of attention. So it was a very symbiotic relation. Um, but she's very good at it and more power to her, you know, and she's, and she's done so much for women's sports. Um, and I think it is partly because she just, she keeps giving, but she gets so much back. Beautifully said. What do you admire about Billie Jean King, aside from her tennis skills? And what have you learned from her journey from tennis star to equal rights crusader? I think one of the things that I admire about her is just thinking about how the changes that have occurred for women during her lifetime and how she has responded to those adapted and also helped make more changes and if you think back to when she was born in the 1940s and the expectations that you know women white women would mainly marry and have children well the, the world has changed <laughs> beyond that that's no longer the main option there didn't used to be women's professional sports of any kind and tennis has shown the way she also then become a, a leader in gay rights and acceptance of people of various gender definitions and Again, this is not something that was on her radar growing up or in the 1960s or even in the 1980s, but she's able to grow with these new challenges and new ways of seeing things and just keep on going. But she is kind of like, you know, the little engine that wouldn't give up. I mean, there's a, a way in which she just has so much energy and, and so much to give but she doesn't, she's never been locked in her old way. She's always responsive to the world around her and wanting both to help shape things and make things better, but also taking advantage of the opportunities and the changes that are given to her. So it's a, it's a, it's a really potent combination. And I think it explains why we have so few sports stars, male or female, who have offer us this combination of amazing athleticism, but also social justice activism. I mean, we see it most now in the WNBA uh, and their stance on Black Lives Matter, but it's, it's pretty unusual. Uh, and again, I think that that's something that is really quite exceptional about Billie Jean King is that she's had this thrust commitment all along. So where do you think women's tennis would be today without Billie Jean King's pioneering efforts? Well, there clearly would be women's tennis, but I don't think it would be anywhere near as strong and as established as it is. You know, there's a very interesting sort of larger story about the history of women's sports. Tennis was lucky in that it got in 
pretty early in the 1970s. That was the takeoff decade for tennis, for the professionalization of tennis. And women were able to be an important part of that. And of course, you also had these wonderfully charismatic stars like King and Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert. When other women's sports tried to get off the ground in, you know, in terms of building professional leagues, it was later and the sports world was changing. It was, there was much more money involved. The domination of the NFL and the NBA had grown exponentially. ESPN made a huge difference and it was just much harder for women's sports to get you know their share of the money and the attention so i think that tennis was really lucky it got established a little bit earlier and then could build on it and then of course it's just been gifted with wonderful stars you know especially serena williams uh, who just brings such passion and class to the sport. So, but I do think a lot of that does date back to Billie Jean King and her advocacy. And I think that the women tennis players, especially the Williams sisters, they are outspoken in acknowledging that debt. What a great role model to look up to. Yep. So lastly, as this is a podcast about groundbreaking ideas, limitless imagination, and most importantly, fearless execution, I'd like to end with this question. It's been said that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, especially with an athlete with the ability of king stature, she definitely perspired. But but all kidding aside, Billie Jean King is a really good example of this definition. Well, you know, it's tough for historians to see things in such black and white terms. 99% on one side, 1% on the other. I, I see that equation as more 50-50 and think that she's a good example of both those ways of thinking about imagination, that it's the perspiration and inspiration. Um, the more I've studied athletes, and especially women athletes, it's not just pure athleticism. There is something else there. Because if it were just, then it would only be the tallest and the strongest. But there's a mental aspect to this that really motivates them, drives them, gives them the vision. Um, and maybe that's what you call inspiration. But you could also call it perspiration because it's what it takes to actually get it done. So I'm going to punt on that question and uh, not really take a stand except to say I would see it more as a 50-50 proposition. So on that note, I just want to add because I love that point about that there's this mental component. And I know you're talking about female athletes across the board, but mm -hmm. – Tennis requires a certain kind of mental toughness that I think I think it's different than other sports. I think, you know, you're not out there with 10 other players. You've got this obligation. If you're playing doubles, you've got this obligation to your doubles partner. You've got an obligation to yourself, like, to keep going. If you're playing singles, it's like this mentally tough sport. And I'm just wondering how that helped Billie Jean King become the person that she was. 
Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, she has mainly been drawn to what I would call individual sports, where it's precisely what you outlined, that it's really up to you. You're going to win that match or not. It also reminds me of road racing. There's a similar kind of challenging of yourself and you're not part of a team. You may train as part of a team, but it's really coming down to you and what you do. And I think that that does really uh, affect who, who she becomes. And it's probably similar to what successful women and men, the way they can focus in their own lives on what they care about. I don't know. That's a pretty huge generalization. Historians don't like making huge generalizations, but I think there's a lot going on. But, you know, mainly the fun thing about thinking about Billie Jean King is that she's not just a tennis player. There's so many ways that you can think about her, both in terms of her advocacy, but also just in the the various causes she's been involved in and how her life really does fit into the larger story of the history of sports and the history of women and the history of feminism. And I think it just shows, it confirmed for me that sports is not just some pastime or something that people are interested in watching on television. It's really so much embedded in American culture and society. And it's a way of understanding for confronting and recognizing the ongoing discrimination against women. Because nowhere is it more clear that women are not treated equally with men than in the world of sports. And despite almost 50 years of Title IX, that's still true. And, you know, the recent brouhaha over the NCAA and the meager training facilities for the women's March Madness versus the men's shows that <laughs> there's still a lot more that, that needs to be done. Absolutely. I played sports in college, and what they did for the men's teams versus the women's teams was surprising. It's just obscene. It's obscene, yeah. But you had much more than I would have had in college. But it just, it makes me so angry that, and also I'm kind of surprised that here we are almost 50 years into Title IX and after the Battle of the Sexes, and we're still fighting these battles and it just shows me how deeply ingrained misogyny and discrimination against women is and how sports is unfortunately still primarily seen as a male domain, despite the amazing contributions of women athletes, which you know because you were one of them. So, end of speech. <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful discussion, Susan. What a pioneer. I'm Lori Dillon, your host of Genius Beats Fear, brought to you by Cross Border Solutions. This podcast was executive produced by Mary Lynn Mittenstrom. Christy Clements wrote the script. The audio of this podcast was produced by Matthew DeMello with editing and musical contributions by Andrew O'Donnell. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You don't have to be a genius to see why that makes sense. We'll be back next week with more stories about brilliant leaders and innovators whose game-changing contributions are real-life proof that genius always beats fear. Fear.